Good morning. Thank you for joining me on KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Um, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio, can also be found live streaming at kzyx.org. And I am broadcasting this morning from the MCOE studio in Ukiah. Thank you for joining me for Good Ancestors and Local Treasures with Corrine Pierce. Gadi Machi, good morning. Um, Sinthamana, Ana Pikabitam Day. I am your host, Keishi Corrine Pierce. Support for KZYX comes from our members at Corners of the Mouth in Mendocino, collectively owned and operated since 1975, offering organic and local produce, groceries, and more, taking curbside orders Mondays 11 to 2 at 707-937-5345. More information at cornersofthemouth.com. Good morning, everyone. I'm so excited and I'm honored that you're joining me on this chilly December morning and hoping for rain. Um, today, we're going to take a look at some of the amazing people, places, and events that make our home in Mendocino, Lake, and Sonoma counties unique and rich. I'm grateful to be able to share some of my personal heroes who happen to also be some of the most influential movers and shakers in our local indigenous community. Today is December 6th, and we are joined by two amazing Native women who deeply inspire me. Um, my first guest is going to be Bonnie Lockhart, a gifted artist and community activist from the Sherwood Valley Tribe located in Willits, California. Bonnie has been impacting the local community for a few years. She's a, a young woman. Um, and she hit the ground running. <laughs> I remember her from being a little girl and just, oh my gosh, she's so cute. Um, and she's an amazing artist. She, not only does her personal art introduce an indigenous perspective to non-native community, she also teaches art um, to our community. So the youth in our community and the adults, the families in our community um, as a path for healing and self-expression. So I can't wait for you to hear about the projects that she has coming up, which are going to be awesome. And then my second guest is Allie Metters Knight of the Machupta tribe located in Chico, California. So she's uh, Wela Mia, which means just over the hill. Uh, Allie's work is far reaching. She is an absolute inspiration to me. I am very involved um, in uh, land restoration projects and sharing knowledge about plants and she is taking it to the next level. She's a gifted artist, a community organizer. Um, she's an activist as well as a master practitioner and teacher of traditional ecological knowledge which is also known as tech. So I'm blessed and grateful to have you both here today on Good Ancestors and Local Treasures with Corrine Pierce on KZYX. I'm honored that you made the time to share with us. Um, and I just want to jump right into it because I, you guys could talk forever. We could talk for five hours about the cool stuff that you guys are doing. And I'm also going to open up the lines for questions 
um, after they're done talking. So keep in mind if you have questions for these amazing ladies. Um, so Bonnie, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us um, what is going on with you? Nawi, Sintamana Bani Lakar Ana Kaipoma Ana. My name is Bani Lockhart and I am from Sherwood Valley. Um, but I'm also from Panolaville and Hopland and Yokea. And my grandma says we're also from the coast. And I, I think it's important, um, even though I'm an enrolled member at Sherwood, which I'm really grateful to be, um, that we come from many different tribal communities and we have relatives, lots of different places. And I like to acknowledge that. Um, I also like to acknowledge my parents, um, my father, Edwin Lockhart, my mom, um, Phyllis Binder. Um, you know, they helped to raise me up and also our community helped to raise me up. And I think that that's really important. I think about um, early memories of being at our community events and seeing people dancing and singing and smelling medicine. And, um, you know, I think about um, learning to weave when I was young um, from Christine Hamilton, who, you know, we think about how people bring our culture into our community and when you're a young native kid you don't always realize how special that is and you get older and you realize wow like that was that was on on purpose to keep that going you know so i also acknowledge the work of um corinne like everything that you do for our community too um to share and to keep it going it it really makes a difference it makes it available for for myself and for so many others to learn and to continue to preserve our community's um you know culture but also just what community is for us and what brings people together without them even always realizing that that's what's holding us so you know with that i i think it's important for my story to mention that I was one of those kids who was encouraged to go to school. And so I was in a bit haunted by higher education most of my life, even though I didn't really like school most of the time. Um, and then when I got to college, my father had actually already passed away. So I tell the story like his spirit kind of kind of kept me going. He's like, keep going, keep going, keep going. I'm like, oh, fine, I will. And there are lots of things I learned when I went to school. Um, I you know, learned how to communicate, I guess, on some level. And I also learned about grants and I learned about programs. And but everything I did, I remember feeling like, how is it going to help my community? Like, how is this relevant to my community, especially finding myself in higher education systems where there's so few Native students, really? You know, there may be a good collection, but there's so few Native students, and many times I was the only Native student in my class, or one of two, or one of three. So I share this because I think it's important. Um, it can be hard sometimes to be the, the only Native person in a room or in a circle, uh, but it, it made a difference for me because everything... I felt that I collected, I know sometimes we talk about it, like putting it in our basket, you know, everything that I collected in my basket from higher education, from living in different states, from, you know, even being in different relationships and friendships throughout my life, I feel are useful to me now. Um, and I continue to learn. So one way that I felt it was useful to me was um, way back in 2010, um, I really felt it was important to bring an event to our community. And, and at the time it was called Death to Meth. It later became Youth Action Party. And what that was, was raising $20,000 for a one day event, which now that I say it, it sounds um, just, just crazy. <laughs> um, but what it, what wow, it really 20, was, you was, you did that, you raised, yeah. dang, Bonnie, yeah. <laughs> you're hired. Yeah, but <laughs> I know, I know. But, but what it really was, was, 
staring at the sheriff and asking for $20,000 and being told no and asking the police department for 500 after, you know, you get told by the sheriff, they're not going to give you $20,000 and learning along the way, like, how do we build these things and how do we all care about the same thing? And, and really what I learned is that we all care about the future of our community. We all care about the future of our youth as it relates to um, keeping them safe. I will shout out that the tribes provided over half of the funding for that event when it came down to it. And all the other community organizations kind of fell in line with <laughs> contributing what they could, but the tribe showed up really strong to that event, Hoplin especially. Um, and then moving forward, you know, I'm grateful that that event has continued through the support of Mendocino County Youth Project. And I share it as an example of something that took a lot of work to get going. And then I like being able to go, okay, cool, take it from here. I have to accept it might change from here too. And like, let it be. Um, the same is with the Native American mentoring program that Panolago um, wrote a grant for. I had just graduated from, from Berkeley with my master's in social work. And again, thinking to myself, how can this be useful to my community? I knew I could keep living in the Bay Area and working for the health center there um, and helping them build projects. But I felt really strongly that I wanted to find a way to contribute to my community, whether it was contract work or actually taking a position. And I chose to take the position um, through Panolaville actually because of Cho reaching out to me and asking me to, to help it grow, to take it somewhere from where it was. And I feel in a lot of ways that was a spiritual commitment that I made. I, I've come to know this a lot better now is that we actually make commitments that aren't there, that are more than verbal. They're more than the contract. They're more than the retirement plan. Uh, so I made that agreement with Cho in a really long conversation. And I kind of decided, well, okay, I'm going to give this amount of my time each week to this. Uh, and that was a beautiful and challenging experience at times because I wanted so much for the program to do well, for adults and youth to connect and for them to share um, cultural experiences with each other, but also knowledge and to build relationships that would last. And sometimes you don't know that that's going to happen right then and there. <laughs> you don't know like that the relationship that you might help happen, if it's going to even make much of a difference in the year that you are supposed to be watching it and supporting it and the ways in which you think you're supporting it. You really have to wait and see how those relationships show up later and, and what that looks like. Uh, I think it's really special to see now. Um, I left the NAIA program about a year ago, but it's really special for me to see now youth who participated in the program when I first started back in 2018, graduating high school, um, continuing to communicate with adults that they met in that in that program, which in my opinion, it's hard not to make a program feel like a program, but it's really important to try. <laughs> it's really important for the lines of the program to somehow fade away and feel like we're all coming together magically. <laughs> Um, you know, once a week or once a month um, and building those relationships because really programs, in my opinion, should be designed for people to connect and not to feel like the program is running, running us along. Um, the same is true for Sherwood back in 2020, the beginning of 2020, I helped to write a grant at my tribe along with three other tribal members, um, Antoinette Asensio, Buffy Wright, and Carlos Rivera. And we were awarded the grant in July of 2020. Um, through the Board of Corrections and um, Community Corrections. And it's really a large amount of funding for uh, Sherwood to manage, um, which is really 
an incredible learning curve, I think, for many of us, especially with how much there is to um, share. Uh, what's really special about it is that we're able to work directly with um, Generation Red Road, which Carlos Rivera is the founder of, to build our program out. And we're able, because of the pandemic, I think, in a lot of ways, to make adjustments as needed. So if something isn't going to happen right when we thought it would, what is the, um, we're able um, to change I'm it. sorry to interrupt you, Bonnie. What is that program that, that you did with Sherwood? I know it's a big, like it's a, a wellness center, right? Or some kind of um, community wellness. Thing. What what did you guys write the grant for? Sure. So our grant is within this larger building that our, our tribal minister helped to secure for Sherwood. So we have these two buildings that Sherwood purchased um, last year, 2020, yeah. And Sherwood's tribal youth program helps to pay some of the rent for that building. So that's kind of how it contributes to the space itself. And the youth program is designed to outreach to rural northern Mendocino County. So Cotto, Sherwood area, um, sometimes even collaborating with Round Valley. And then also, I think, connecting the dots to some of our even rural places in north of Ukiah is kind of how we market, like north of Ukiah. Inevitably, though, because we know ancestry is a part of this, some children live on Hoplin Reservation, but they have ancestry in northern Mendocino County. So that's kind of the spirit of the program is that um, we help to connect our children and our families, our adults, our elders, and that you do not have to be an enrolled member in order to participate, which is really, really huge. Um, and it's, it's also a growing edge for our community. Um, All right, because before you, we're um, able... I'm going to yeah. interrupt you. I don't, I don't mean, but I, I like to share some culture with the people that are listening, some knowledge that they might not know. So, um, there are federally recognized tribes in California and people can be a member of that federally recognized tribe. If you have more than, uh, one tribal heritage, let's say you're more than one band of Pomo, you don't get to be in more than one tribe. You have to pick one tribe and that's it. Um, uh, when Bonnie is talking about serving um, people that are not federally recognized, that can be big. That can be um, direct descendants that don't have blood quantum, which is one way of doing it. It can be political, where some families are disenrolled, and even though their children might be half or full blood, they are not federally recognized. And then there was also something that a lot of people don't know about non-natives don't know about termination that happened in California where they actually terminated all tribes and said, you are no longer native anymore. In fact, on the birth certificates for the years of termination, Native American wasn't even a selection choice. You could be Mexican, you could be white, you could be black, and that was your only choice. Um, when reinstatement happened, um, only about half of the tribes were re-recognized. So in California, there are a lot of Native Americans who have ancestry that they can document for generations that are not federally recognized by the government, um, which is a way of breaking up community. So the work that we do, the work that Bonnie does in community, um, to include those people is actually pretty groundbreaking <laughs> and can be a hard thing to, to put into grants. So I think that's really awesome that you guys are doing that and there's no um, 
you know, there's no requirement that you be a federally recognized person if you have lineal descent. So I think that's cool. And I just wanted everybody to know, I think everyone, the more knowledge you have, <laughs> the better, you know, you know, the reality of, of what's happening. So talk about your program some more. So what, what is going on with that now? Yeah. So I actually, similar to my other stories, like I actually no longer work there as of last week. Um, I'm really, really excited because when I was, you know, writing this grant, <laughs> I really imagined who should be running it. And it really wasn't me. Um, it was somebody who's from Colorado and from Sherwood. And so now we have Gabriel Ochoa, Carmen Ochoa's son, who is the director of the youth program. And, and they also deeply understand um, he's a descendant of Sherwood, a non-enrolled member, but a descendant um, and a totally a member of our community. Um, and that's really what our aim is for the, for the program is that we know that there's generations externally to our community and within our community of people thinking they don't belong because of what happened to our communities. And so if this grant, which will eventually end, but, but the spirit of it hopefully will not, that if this can show that we are all belonging to each other and to this place um, through what it is that we do, which is outreach really broadly going into the schools and reaching students, providing a family program, which serves all tribal communities in our area, um, providing youth circles, if we so choose it in the schools or in our office, providing one-on-one -on -one support for youth. Um, we've done some incredible work one-on-one -on -one with our youth, and we currently have I think almost eight students on our youth council, which has been kind of slow coming for the last year. Um, and they ultimately are going to grow into their own leadership, leading us forward with what it is they want us to do as far as monthly events that we've already been providing, um, activities and outreach to youth that relate to issues that, that they go through, including drugs and alcohol and suicide and depression. Um, but really, that's of their choosing, how they choose to share it and how they choose to reach other youth. And also providing training to adults in our area, knowing that um, there are gaps, even though we're really lucky to have a lot of training offered to um, adults in our community, there are still gaps where people don't get connected. Maybe they're not on the email chain or um, it doesn't work for their timing. And so we have funding available to get people trained um, in both Generation Red Road and celebrating families, but also we have a partnership with youth project for trauma-informed training as well. So there's a lot of movement around it and we will have the grant at least for two more years. So I'm really excited to see, you know, what comes of that. And I really appreciate the context. Yeah, that's, it's amazing work. Like I, I, like you said, sometimes the timing doesn't work and I, I never seem to be able to join in to the projects that you've been doing on the most recent, um, but I see it happening. And I think that that's really, really amazing. Um, I, when I was talking to Bonnie before we started the show today, I, I said something to her and this is how I imagine her because she really, like she sails through our community <laughs> and she starts these amazing things. It's like she's planting trees, right? She's planting these trees and then they're growing. Um, and then she moves on to the next tree and that's amazing. But what I, something that I have seen through this whole thing is, um, your art. And uh, like the painting you do. And I would love to hear about how you came to art. Because a lot of the art that you do um, focuses on indig like indigenous perspective. It cannot help it because that is your perspective. Um, and then yeah. for you to be 
like I just saw Haley did a, a slideshow of all the art that you guys had done over the last year. And it was amazing. Like the, there was acorns and there was fire and there was dancers and these were little kids doing it. So I would love to hear about how you came to art and because I like I'm I'm a big art supporter for our community. We were amazing artists. We were rich people. We had we were cultured people. Um, and I would love to hear how you came to your art and how you share it with community. Sure. Um, well, first and foremost, I blame my mother because she brought home pieces of paper that had, you know, writing on one side. And then she'd be like, flip it over. It's got a good side on that. And just draw on that, you know. So that <laughs> I blame her because she would not let me be bored. I could always create something. Um, and then, you know, I think. Uh, being exposed mostly to Waldorf kids who got really great art experience. And I got to sit across from them at space camp and watch them blend colors. And I just felt so grateful. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I think for me, continuing to create, continuing to use art as a place for me to express myself and to help other youth express themselves has, has been really special. The more you make, you make things, the, the, the better you inevitably get because the more you get to know yourself. Um, now, you know, I think more often than not, for me, it's a landscape or a piece of land that comes out in my in my work. It's like it's the same mountains behind Panolaville, like inevitably that come out every time. And then I have to push myself a bit further uh, to make it something different. Uh, the ocean is always coming through. Uh, lots of times the sedge beds come through, too, especially as they are like untended, like wild. Um, I think also, you know, lately... Uh, another side of my life has been creating movement around space for us to make art and space for Native artists to have visibility. And I thank Eric Wilder and Mio Marufo for the push, too, because they've done that in their own ways. Um, lately, I've started saying that the artists are the storytellers and like that we as as our community have been telling the story like through our baskets as well right we've been showing them through our other mediums of art and there's so much story that comes with teaching as well so for me i, I think that um you know i just spent the weekend on the coast working at the mendocino art center and they're starting to carve out more space for us there um our our goal is eventually to have a maker space at mendocino art center um currently me and mio and eric work out of there and we have a show in may and the goal of it is to show native american artists in a contemporary way that so often even our art is narrated by someone else besides us and the story is told in a way that we wouldn't tell it really um or it includes certain things and not the whole story so um i'm really grateful for that because i think it's important um there's a part of me i think that is very like touched by like me valuing my art as well um because the, you know our society is is just this crazy place and and money is a big part of it and so um you know i don't necessarily make art for money but to feel valued um and to make space for myself in the form of time i think is like the greatest gift that i can give myself i know it's the same also for weavers and for gatherers and and, and people who do those things and lastly i just want to say there are plenty of things i learned in school but so much more i learned from our community and that includes, you know, our stories, that includes, 
hearing about relatives that I never got to meet. It includes learning how to gather. It includes learning how to identify plants, um, learning our language. I'm just so grateful. There's so much to learn uh, in our community. And I'm grateful, um, you know, that I hope I remain teachable because I know there's so much more. <laughs> so, yeah, we. Yeah, we, Bonnie. Um, before you finish talking, <laughs> I really would yeah. love, um, I would love for you to just briefly tell us about the project that you and Mio and Eric worked on with the tiles that you did. And I know you guys are way ahead because you said that it's going into a building that isn't even built yet. Um, but yeah. can you tell everybody what that is? Cause representation sure. matters. Like that's why I, that's part of why I am doing this show because representation matters. We are here. Um, we aren't going anywhere. <laughs> uh, and we have a perspective. And I, I actually like that you brought up that when, when other people curate our art, um, it is definitely tailored to European descendant colonizer flavors they have a very particular mm -hmm. flavor that they enjoy and allow and um it's amazing you know that i've been privileged to see in the last year a couple of um art exhibits curated by indigenous people with indigenous art and this is new like this is groundbreaking stuff this is within this the 2020s so i'm not taking any of yeah. that for granted so tell us what that what that is that's coming yeah, thank you. Uh, so we were asked, Eric and myself actually were asked to do a tile project pre-COVID. And then the grant wasn't awarded, so then we were asked to do it anyway. And what it is, is we pulled Mio Marufo in. And we, of course, Mio has a great ability to be like, all right, let's break this down. And so what we chose to do with Mio's support is make three murals. One is, um, I think we call it whale. The other one, um, I think we call it fish. And I think the last one we call um, comorant because every mural features a different animal and also features a different scene. And they're really large. The They're, you know, arms arms length and about this, you know, big each. They're really, they're really large. You can't see me, I'm sure, because I'm on the radio, but it's big. And um, we hand-painted every tile. Uh, Mio made basket design on every single tile. Oh. Eric did line on every single tile and uh, I painted large backgrounds to start and then supported them in whatever I could um, leading us to the end. And there'll be three murals in every bathroom at um, the new Ford house bathroom in Mendocino. So they're tearing that bathroom down. Supposedly this week, they're starting to tear it down. And those tiles, along with dedication tiles that we created to pay respect to the people of the coast will be installed in the new bathrooms. And so they're single bathrooms. So everyone who uses the bathroom will get to see the whole uh, collection of them. We've never done ceramics before. Um, I am pretty much the, the painter in the crew. <laughs> so for Mio and Eric to, to do this project, not only was um, incredible because we did it in about two and a half months, <laughs> but it was a, a test of our ability to do something we'd never done before. Every time a mural came out, we were like, wow, that turned out good. <laughs> I know. I, you kept posting <laughs> no. pictures and it was like that. It was like you were like, wow, look what we did. We really did that. That was really, it was so cute. I've never been so excited to use a bathroom that doesn't exist in my life. I'm so ready. I'm ready to use it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, we Bonnie. Yes, okay. 
Thank you for listening to Good Ancestors and Local Treasures with Corrine Pierce on KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. My second guest today is Allie Matters-Knight, and she is amazing. We're actually about the same age, which is super cool, and I love, like, I see a lot of young um, people coming up and doing great work and I look back at our ancestors and I see the work that we that they did and we are standing on their shoulders and I look at you and I mean there's a reason that this call that this show is called good ancestors and local treasures because you are one and what what I love about what what you guys do like especially what you do Ali is that you teach other people to be good ancestors and in a way that is so needed right now because 80% I, I said this at a, a talk that I did the other day that 80% of California had to burn up before you would ask before the state would ask for indigenous people for help even though we've been here for 30,000 years um, and you are the pinnacle of that knowledge ancestral knowledge coming down to us so I can't wait to hear what you have to say and to hear about the program that you created. And I know that the listeners are going to have questions. So uh, listen up, everybody. Here's Ali. <laughs> hey, hey, Tunanem. Um, Nick, uh, Ali Matters Knight, also um, we call Enam uh, Kule, grasshopper woman. Uh, also, just because I make grasshopper baskets. And I want to say, Wyndham Lightham, good morning. Um, I'm sitting here in occupied Machupta territory, also known as Chico, California. And I'm also um, Nomalaki Kankau Wintu, as well as Machupta. And um, just like Kareem spoke earlier, I'm only allowed by federal regulations to be enrolled into one tribe. Uh, my great-grandfather, uh, Carl Delgado, um, lived in Medicino, worked at the Round Valley uh, Indian School as a, as a principal, and there's a gymnasium named after him. And I'm also a Briton from that area. So I'm um, probably I'm related. Probably related. <laughs> related. Eddie Britton is my great-grandmother. Her name was Shirley Britton. So... Um, you know, I uh, I want to just talk about, you know, how I got into this. Uh, what I started doing with basket weaving, I was 24 years old when I started basket weaving. And I had a great opportunity um, to go to a camp, a cultural camp. I was 24. I just came out of Los Angeles. Um, I had done some art when I was in high school, really had some ambition to be do art. But my life had kind of just kind of fallen apart in my early 20s. Um, and I was just building myself personally back together and trying to go to college, working at the tribe. Um, I was working on volunteering at the tribe as well as working a full-time position and going to college. And uh, I had really was going in different directions. So I really got to go to a cultural camp and sit down for one week and every day basket weave. Every day smell the willow. Every day remember how it started remember how it went and then remember how to finish it and and kept repeating it until i felt like i couldn't forget it and then i also made other things you know soap root brushes and acorns and went through the whole you know and i kind of got the feeling of what it was like to live in a village to kind of wake up in the morning and kind of have your traditional projects and your traditional thinking involved. And there was a lot of language being uh, spoken at this camp. And so um, it was a very emerging experience for me. 
And so when I left, um, I left this camp and I just kind of like didn't want to go home for the first time. And when I finally got to the point when I wanted to weave my own baskets, I found it hard to find willow because I wasn't an expert gatherer. And I also found out that I didn't have land. <laughs> and so not only did I did not have land, the tribe didn't have land. We were a landless tribe. And so a lot of these aspects of building partnerships for me to get willow and, and things were, was a really like hit and miss experience for me. And so eventually I got invited to do what was called a Kids and Creeks education program in early 2001. And I was working with the local school district and the tribe. I was volunteering. I was basically a accounts payable clerk at my, my tribe. And I would volunteer parts of my day to go work with youth. And I just had a knack for teaching and kind of being funny with kids because they were actually really uh, disrespectful in the questions that they asked me and they didn't mean to be disrespectful. Their intentions were not mean, but they would ask me, why am I wearing regular clothes? Do I live in a teepee? Just some basic questions that were insensitive that were coming from the mouths of children. And I was able to blow them off and kind of like create a curriculum that really was soft on them, but also really helpful for me not to be insulted and help give the teachers and like, you have a responsibility not to bring these kids in here to whip me up like this. So we started um, working on some curriculum development and I really focused on land management and plants as our mutual space of understanding that we don't always, I don't have to teach you my traditional knowledge that's sacred to me, but let me tell you what's important to these keystone species. And so as the years rolled on, I started to really understand what Chico State, which is an institution of learning and teaching, was really kind of making a big bucks off of me by having me come into all these classrooms, do all these uh, I mean, I did all these talks and guest lectures that I was all over every place until I was basically giving myself away for free. And I got upset. I finally just hit a broke. I have five children. I have a child who's just blind and disabled. I was really w running myself on that hard just to just to be good for my tribe, just to have, you know, just to make something right. And um, I also was an activist. So I ended up you know, working, uh, going to other tribes and kind of listening to what everybody was going through. And I realized that we have a land management problem. We have tons of non-native agencies that have claim to all of our ancestral territories. And, and they're really, they're not sovereign nations. They're municipals. They're 501c3s. They're, they're nothing. And I come from a sovereign nation. I come from government to government relation with the U.S. government at Washington, D.C. And I realized, like, if once I was able to, like, posture myself as an authority because of my tribal affiliation, I really started looking down at all of these agencies saying, we need to work together. You need to step up into my arena. And it, uh, my posturing was kind of like a chip on my shoulder. So I kind of had to wear that chip down for a while, but it was okay. You know, what I really ended up doing was um, kind of, I call it being a Doberman pincher. 
where I really just went out into different agencies and I was like, you either work nice with me or we're going to have problems. And then I would just like bark them into my tribal council chambers until I was the bad guy and my council was the good guy. And so it ended up working as a very Genghis Kong type uh, uh, good cop, bad cop strategy. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, that I ended up working with all these different agencies. So in 2018, and I've been working on this for nine years, I ended up, you know, really pushing for memorandums of understanding, which a lot of government agencies were just kind of like memorandum of understanding with the tribe. That sounds wonderful. Yes, it's called SB 18. It's Senate Bill 18. It basically says that you recognize our authority over our tribal land for all of our cultural resources and you need to make a plan with us every turn you make. It's the law. And they were like, yeah, I understand that. I was like, so that's a memorandum of understanding. Right. Well, it's also a prenup to court. So these, if they want to keep messing with the law and not acknowledge the tribal resources and work with me, I just made a prenup for court. You understand the law, right? But they were putting the MOU on the front paper like we made an agreement with the tribe. Aren't we good guys? Oh, no. Okay. I didn't, they don't play chess with me very often. So when I, I play, I do this with different agencies until finally I'm like, had to come with the major plan. What are we going to really do with all this plan? We had our cultural monitors from our tribe that were kind of what they call stones and bones, where they're doing cultural monitoring for in a specific manner. But I really thought that we should be expanding our sovereignty out to all of our living cultural resources our oak trees our gatherings bases our sedge beds our you know willow patches our dog vein everything that's ours and our collective resources is should be under our our tipo as well and so i went into you know a lot of you know federal agencies and kind of like meandered around and asked a lot of questions until I realized that we were eligible for 638 contracting for federal stewardship contracts once we were able to build partnerships and establish that all these living cultural resources are by law protected by our tribe. But that takes many steps. So one of the steps is, is I had to go to my tribal council and said, hey, I've been teaching this plant traditional ecological knowledge for 20 years. You know, I haven't even had a contract for it. I've been doing it for free just to be a nice guy. But what I really did was I gave myself to the people Indian way. I gave myself, I'm given. I'm just like a, a, a song singer has given his voice or her voice to the song and to the people. And when they ask for the song, they sing. And when they ask for those things, well, I am was given myself in that way. And so I am for the people. I have given myself. I have sacrificed myself. There is nothing, I don't have to get paid. This is Indian way. But can you give me a title? Give me a master title. <laughs> so they gave me master TEK, uh, you know, practitioner, which basically was able to get a master's degree through my tribe and skip the 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 student, you know, because there's no TEK title I can get through Chico State University, all these places anyway. So I might as well get my master's from my tribe. So I went and got my master's from my tribe, debt-free education. Whoop, whoop, whoop. And then I went forward and said, now I'm declaring all these keystone species under cultural protection. And then I'm going to do certification on how to manage them and take care of them. And then once we get this built up, I'm going to go after all those stewardship contracts that are laid open. River partners are not doing it. 
all of these major 501c3s that are taking gorgeous contracts for even the Yurok land management's coming down here and doing restoration. All, there's no backup. There's no who's going to tend to it for the next five years, seven years after you've restored it. There's no plan for that. So I come in here to make a plan. But in order to make a plan to do long term, we have to have seed bank. And so I went after Mendocino Forest has a tree farm here in Chico, right off the Skyway. And they have a piece of Mendocino forestry right in the middle of Chico in our Machupta territory. So I've been actually on their campus or in their, on this federal piece of property for the last 17 years, poking and prodding of saying, asking them, do you have any federal surplus property? Do you have any buildings? Do you have a bucket? Do you have anything? What you got? You got some rope lying like, around here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You ever heard of Alcatraz? You got any surplus federal property, man? Anything. So um, they were kind of ignorant to the whole process of working on a government-to-government relationship at that time for the 17 years. And oh, every time I got a no, I would just say, well, not this time, but I'm going to get more. So this last year, I was really able to come in with a, a, a squad and even some federal agents um, that were tribal liaisons and able to to get our first 638 contract for a seed farm, um, seed bank. So these are native seeds that we are now able to establish a collection of our native seeds that we've been gathering. Um, and that's the other thing. I was able to get a 17.5 public space in the middle of Chico for uh to tend so we've been for the last 12 years putting down native plants and then taking their seeds and using that as a living seed bank but we want to extend that living seed bank and do the stored ones and then help our sister and brother tribes um when they have uh, natural disasters when they need restoration they can come to us for seeds and we also have certifications and trying to streamline them so they have certified jobs workforce development for them to move forward and stay long-term job placement and land management within territories that they are living in. And so um, this, this endeavor has been really, really a struggle, but at the same time, um, it's actually blown up all the way up to policy, influencing policy at Washington, D.C., influencing the president to acknowledge um, traditional ecological knowledge from every department head and move forward because, um, you know, I'm doing a full court press on not only the federal agencies, but on every local municipal and state agency that hasn't been paying attention to land management because we're in a crisis. So my big solution is we need to all develop a climate adaptation center that is tribally led. And I believe that there's tons of funding for that. And so with the new appointment of the United States government finally giving infrastructure money, we have billions of dollars, if not millions, coming to each tribe that we can build for infrastructure development with seed banking, uh, workforce development, and then doing a, a climate adaptation center um, that kind of, kind of looks to the future of what we're going to see um, especially as we uh, we see still Eurocentric land management dominating certain areas, um, uh, and so my 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 biggest goal is to push the tribe to exercise its sovereignty and protect our living cultural resources and flex on everybody who wants to destroy or mitigate our cultural resources without com- consulting us or so, consulting us. That's. Um- <laughs> So I talk about land back a lot, and just the term land back 
can scare people. Um, and when people are scared, they shut down. And I, I try, there are, land back can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And, um, I'm going to talk about it real quick and then I'm going to let you carry on because you brought up a lot of stuff that really like reminded me. So for, I went and taught, I went and talked at a regenerative farming conference. It was a cattle farming and farming. And, um, I, they asked, you know, what can we do to, to help the indigenous community? And I, I didn't say it, <laughs> but fla- like in red flashing lights over my head was land back, land back, land back. And for some people that can mean just give the land back. You got it with privilege that wasn't fairly yours. It was stolen. Give it back. Um, further than that, for me, um, because a lot of times that doesn't feel real, even though I wish it would be real. What does feel real and feels like a good stepping stone is if you, we all know that we have oversight agencies anyway. If we want to build an extra room onto our house, if we want to sink a well, if we want to put in a vineyard, we have to contact the government agents, oversight agencies and get their permission. Um, imagine if we were the oversight to do that. And I was talking at this regenerative farm conference and they're, they're talking about all of these infrastructure that is not working and has not been working since they installed it in the 20s, 30s, 40s. If they had consulted us in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, these great, wonderful, land-loving stewards that are coming up now wouldn't have to struggle to fight against uh, something that already didn't already work. They already knew it wasn't working in the 40s. Like If they had asked us in the first place, and if they ask us now, continuing to go for, I see all of these trees from the fires that happened, you know, and we're, we're in California, so I can say that, and I can be talking about any county that we are in in California. And I see people scared and cutting down the wrong trees and cutting down healthy trees that survived the fire, and are needed for the animals and the land restoration and the feeding of the soil. And it's just fearful. And I wanted to let people know that our our forestry management is actually based on the forestry management in Australia. And they have very different trees. If you've ever cut down a eucalyptus tree, you know it's going to be back the way that it was in five to ten years. Our trees are not like that. Our oak trees are slow growing. Our redwoods are slow growing. Um, it's, it's not, um, feasible and it's no longer working for us at all. And, um, another thing that I wanted to talk about, you guys both talked about, um, we give a lot as indigenous women, like, we are literally the least paid person in the U.S. We make the least money of everyone. And we're still giving ourselves away all the time. And I have changed my perspective of rich. Like, <laughs> I don't have money. <laughs> I don't have, you know, um, monetary wealth. But when I can drive by a place, a sedge bed or a willow stand or a oak savanna that I have been tending and it is producing, I look over and say, wow, I feel rich. And that's like, I hope that we can all feel that way about the land that we tend. So 
you've been teaching classes, Allie. You've been, and I know this because, um, so I started, uh, we started a, a basketry garden, traditional plant garden at my um, tribal office in the, on, on the tribal land in Redwood Valley. And that was something like 20, I want to say 25 years ago. And no one was doing that at that time. So we've ha- I have a lot of experience in that. And, but no one was coming. You know, no one was coming to learn until the last four years. And so I'm so glad that you are in the same play like you've been you've been building it up all this time and and to see the pictures of your classes of people coming to your seed class and people coming and um you know really understanding how you have to be in relationship with these these plants um and another thing that you said was about the stones and bones for the tribal consultants of what they're looking for to protect um and that's a very colonial way of thinking a lot of people only think of Native Americans in the past tense. And like those, I, I am also a cultural education coordinator between our school district and um, Pinoleville. I'm not from Pinoleville, but I, I work for them also. And I get the same questions, you know. Um, do you live in teepees? How come you speak English? Why do so many Native American students have a Spanish last name? And, you know, these are things that should be taught <laughs> because this, but... I know that in school they really don't even talk about the fact that the Spanish were here before the Americans and then the Russians were here before them. Uh, they tend to just start uh, with the gold rush. And that that really um, is a discredit to the history of California and the indigenous people that have seen many people come and many people go. Um, so it's pretty amazing. And I would love to hear... Um, what it feels like for you to have so many indigenous people coming and learning from you now. No, I'm, I'm really humbled um, because I think even when you do as an artist and as a basket weaver, you realize your limitations. Um, you realize you, you see so many talented people around you doing so well that the bar to me was always so high. And then as far as understanding um, the medicine uh, behind the weaving, behind the messages, behind the dances, behind everything that I always felt like um, I will, you know, I had to stay humble. And I love what I learned about, you know, I think uh, Greg Saris wrote this in his book, but that um, there's Mary, Mary um, um, McKay, um, Mabel McKay, sorry had said there's two things that you really need to learn in this life and the one is to learn and to be in the present to learn and love the spirit and everything and then also to learn to be in the presence of the spirit and i think that that the number second one is i'm learning to be in the presence of everybody and this indigenous love and everything and the spirit that's contacting me and around me and I'm really humbled and there's times that it makes me cry. There's times that it makes me really happy. There's times that I just have to push away my own ego and insecurities to sit there in the moment. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I just start to really appreciate my journey on this earth and the dream that I'm in and that everybody who's dreaming with me in this place 
and that we're dreaming of something that's hopeful because I know, and I tell this everybody, whatever has been here will always be. And you can build these shopping malls and you can build these roads, but it only takes two weeks of rain to take it out. You know, and I know that this all can be reset. It can be reset by fire. It can be reset by water. Our ancestors tell me that all the time in my mind that this has been taken away before and taken away really fast. And a lot of these colonial folks that live here do not understand the power of California's nature and how it could just take you out. And so that's why I think that the Climate Adaptation Center seed banks and educating folks on land management, especially building workforce development with indigenous communities, is that once we do have these reset buttons, there's going to be a lot of folks that are going to be gone, especially in Northern California. And we really going to have to have a mission to reset. And we are part of that story. So I really look forward to the future because I think that we are living post-apocalyptic now. Everybody thinks, oh, the end of the world's coming. I was like, oh, and our folks, end of the world happened at Gold Rush. Oh. I'm living in a post-apocalyptic life as a Native woman. And so I'm really lucky when I get to not have to deal with bombs coming down or someone shooting me in the head or the fact that I can't grind acorns and I'm going to make noise and someone's going to find me and kill me. So I'm past that part. And now I'm on, now it's legal for me to do what I'm doing and I have rights. I'm going to take it full throttle to the day I die oh. in honor of my ancestors because I know how they were head back. So I would say, resist protect love and repeat that oh thank you Allie. that's that's amazing um i've been so blessed you know i i tell people and I, I will keep telling people what you are doing what bonnie is doing what i am doing was illegal until 1978 in er almost everybody that's listening to this radio show was definitely live at that point and um i know for a fact that i am about to be and currently watching and experiencing an indigenous renaissance and what is amazing is that we had the capacity to have this renaissance forever we should be living in continual renaissance our people were brilliant indigenous genius and excellence is a real thing um but the fact that now we do have rights and you know i i always say no i am not i am not my grandmother i will she was strong in silent ways and i don't have to be silent anymore and um I am so grateful for both of you women, and I'm grateful for the work that you do in our community, and I am so grateful that you are definitely good ancestors and local treasures, and Yahweh so much for being here, and um, it is time for us to go, so thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Now we... Oh 
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.